Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith. I'm the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, your one-stop shop for everything real estate, business, and tax. If you're a real estate investor, swing on over. We got the information you need. I'm here today with a good friend of mine, Tyler. He's with Cashflow Guys. Tyler is an absolute beast. I got to meet him face-to-face for the first time actually out at FinCon this year in Orlando. Uh, phenomenal guy, super kind, very, very generous with information and helping other people um, probably one of the best contacts I made out there that entire weekend um, in terms of just great people that I like to bring into uh, to my sphere, so to speak, as I encourage everybody else to do. Create your sphere of influence of the smartest people that you can find, and that's the way to success. So, Tyler, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, and I think you're going to be sharing about a, a worse deal. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's hard to decide <laughs> which one. <laughs> I've had more than one bad deal, but, you know. <laughs> I guess that comes from having a lot of experience, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that's probably one of the things I, I feel like with worst deals, we typically look at them and say like, this is where, you know, we lost money or whatnot. But a lot of times they're the biggest learning points for us. Which these really become like our best episodes because it's when, um, it's when we can actually learn from somebody else's mistakes, right? Is that makes us the best investors that we can be so we don't lose money into the next time. I think like the world is really like overrun with people being like, oh yeah, you just throw money against the wall and you'll make money. And we all know that's not the market we're living in anymore. Right. Well, good, Tyler. Before we get into the worst deal, um, do you want to give a, lo- a little bit of background of what you think will be pertinent for everybody to know about you and um, getting into this deal so we can kind of kind of set the stage, so to speak? Well, as you'll find out here shortly, I used to be a house flipper. I'm a recovering house flipper, um, part of House Flippers Anonymous, right? <laughs> but uh, back in the day, I flipped a lot of houses in the early 2000s when things were hot, things were crazy. I made a lot of money. I got really good at it, made a lot of mistakes as you'll hear about one of them today, but I also made a lot of money. So it wasn't all negative. Um, and when I made a lot of money, I got whacked with a lot of taxes. You see, back then I used to think that my charm could have some impact on the IRS and apparently they don't really care. So after paying a six figure tax bill, because you know I filed that 1040 EZ form one year <laughs> after selling a dozen houses uh, and paying the piper, I decided I need, needed to learn how to actually build wealth and then from there, in, in uh, fast forward to 20, about 2012, I started learning about buy and hold investing, you know, actually making a business out of this because I was looking for a way to, to increase my passive income, but reduce my tax bill. The only way I figured found I could do that effectively uh, was through buy and hold real estate. And that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And you built quite a great uh, group with, uh, with cash flow guys, as well as, as a great portfolio yourself into that. I know from the time we talked about it before, um, helping just tons of people, tons of people on how to do what you've learned to be able to create the financial freedom that they're looking for in life. Um, and, um, you know, avoid those pitfalls that kind of led you astray um, in the beginning, I'm sure. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, every great story on a worst deal actually comes usually with somebody um, thinking that uh, they're killing it and doing really well. And this is the best thing that ever happened to them. And they can't wait to get into it. Um, what did that look like for you? 
Well, for me, if you don't mind, I'm going to throw in a, a second, really yeah. short story, because I think your audience will get a huge benefit out of this. Yeah, make it a long story. That's okay. We got all the time. Yeah. All right, good. Well, this this was a, actually a recent one. So I'm a guy, right, that teaches people how to invest in real estate. That's what I do, right? A lot of it's for free. Some of it's paid, whatever. Done uh, more deals than I could count. I should have all the answers, right? But about a year or two years ago, I negotiated this amazing deal, an off-market fourplex. I partnered up with a money partner. The money partner said, you know, I want to have my name on the paperwork, but at, but at the closing table, we'll put you on title, right? So I had the attorneys draft all the paperwork to make sure everything's good to go, no problem. I sent the paperwork out. In the meantime, uh, we closed. I had no reason to think anything was up. We closed this property, awesome deal. We started the renovations, got the getting the work done, no problem, everything's going great. We raised the value of this thing, literally, Scott, I kid you not, we doubled the value, went from 200,000 to 400,000 over a summer in value just by doing the, the improvements, all this. Wow. It, come time, it comes time uh, to talk about what, where we are with next steps, right? Because I skipped that very important thing. I didn't talk about that up front. And I said, well, let's refer back to what the paperwork says because I said, hey, let's sell it. We're at the top of the market. Might as well just sell it. It's, it's, people are offering us ridiculous money for it. And they said, yeah, we'll be happy to sell it. But the problem is you're not going to get anything out of that. I said, what do you mean? What the main mistake I made, the only mistake I really made in that thing, besides trusting somebody without having documentation to back it up, is we did the, all the paperwork, but I never verified that they signed all the paperwork. So they signed the closing docs and never signed our agreement between us, between the parties. So I literally had nothing to stand. They literally stole a four-unit apartment building from me. Um, that was a painful lesson, so to speak. So that what? they actually just stole it, stole it. Like you're like, oh, that's it. I mean, I yeah. guess I lost. Yeah, they they put the money in. I did all the work, and I got absolutely nothing for it. Wow, I am so shocked that you didn't try to sue them or something. Well, yeah. I, I could have, but at the end of the day, I had to ask myself: Is it really worth it going through the pain and the aggravation? Yeah, that's really true. Even when you're on the, like, I'm going to sue somebody side of it. Most people are like, oh man, if I get sued, everything, you know, turns to crap. But it's really true for if you're on the, like, I'm going to have to go sue somebody else because you start having to, you know, it still takes over your mind. It still takes over your life in a lot of ways. And it still costs you a ton, you know, out of pocket, you know, a lot of times for, for breach of contract issues like that, you're not going to find attorneys taking those on contingency. So you're going to have to pay a lot to risk it hoping that you can get them in there. And I bet that person had deeper pockets than you. Too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My word against theirs. So ah, lesson learned, right? <laughs> lesson learned, right? Check everything, you that's know? Right. Yeah. I, I wonder how many times that's happened to everybody. I bet everybody has a story like that in their life where they're like, man, if I would have just done my due diligence better, this would have turned out to be a better deal for me. You know? That's for sure. That was painful. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good, you know, good set the stage for, you know, a solid lesson um, into that. The, um, you know, what is it that, that has you when you're getting into that kind of deal though, Tyler, that gets you uh, motivated to move so quickly into it? Because I would normally, I mean, you did all the other due diligence, right? You did all the hard work, getting all yeah, the attorneys absolutely. to line it up, hammering out the deal, whatnot, right? But like the most important thing, like checking the signature, like gets list. Is that just due to like the excitement of getting to work and actually producing it, you know, or what happens there that leads to that kind of. For me, outcome? the epic failure in that, and that actually wasn't the deal I was going to, I'm going to talk about in this oh, episode, okay. but 
the biggest failure for that is I put a lot of time scout over the years because I've made a lot of mistakes. And when you make mistakes and you learn from them, hopefully if you're smart, you put systems in place. And that's what I did is I've developed systems. I've added people to my team so that I don't handle every specific aspect of the deal because there are things that I'm really good at. Negotiation is one of them. But when it comes to the details, the minute things, I rely on attorneys and title companies and different vendors to take care of these things for me. In this case, I set all that aside in favor of this being a quick deal, no problem, we'll just knock this out real quick. I didn't follow my own procedures and, and, and that cost me a good chunk of money. So lesson wow. learned. Is that something of, when you're talking about developing these systems and procedures um, over time, how long has it taken you or how long did it take you to develop like what you, what you currently use? Since now we've been in multifamily since 2014, so about four years and uh, the systems didn't really kick in until we were well through the second year. So it's taken us about two years to get systems down to where if I identify a property and uh, we get it, we have a meeting of the minds with the seller, we can, it, it just kind of goes and rolls. I mean, we've got everything in place and, and we got the inspectors, we've got, you know, we've got the go-to Rolodex and the go-to team members. So we can knock stuff out pretty quickly now. We can turn them pretty quick. Is that the kind of, are those systems what you're teaching people as yes, part of absolutely. the education work you do? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that's so incredibly powerful. I mean, you find that that's really what it comes down to for a lot of businesses um, that I think a lot of people don't realize is that it's actually your systems which allow you to grow. You can do like maybe one deal or two and try to do it all yourself. But then after that, you're going to start losing money because you're not, like the people that you hire in, in my experience, aren't typically able to execute at your level because they don't know all the other work you know, that went into like, oh, I would know just to think that I need to go do this, you know, right. but that's where your systems come in, right? It's, it's like, okay, cool. And then you can refine your system when things go wrong. So it's like, you don't have to be the smartest person, but your system does. Right. Well, I mean, think about it from, like, look at, look at attorneys, for example, you have a, a law practice, but if I came to you with a, uh, I don't know, a, a medical malpractice suit, well, you're in an asset protection law. You have a specialty in law. That's a constant. That's a thing that you've spent a lot of time, you and your team, I spent a lot of time becoming very well versed in that area of law. Law is very is all over the place. If I came to you with a case that you had no experience in, ethically, you would look at it and go, "Well, that's not what we're what we're good at." So you'd refer that out to another attorney, and and that's exactly the same thing that should happen in a real estate transaction. Investors should pick a piece that they're good at and stick with that, and the rest of it, find people and leverage that experience and, and make it happen. I'm a big fan of um, work that's like the work that you do, Tyler. And I think the work that we do a lot at Royal Legal Solutions on taking all as many pieces as possible off of an investor's plate to say, to really get everybody as close as possible to be like, I really just want you hitting the streets and negotiating deals and making offers because that's how the money gets made. And then you can pay all us to do all of the back end of like giving you all the support and all the other pieces. Because the one thing, the puzzle piece that you have that, no, that you, you're uniquely situated to go do as an investor is actually go out there and scout the deals that nobody else is going to do that for you. And the more I think that we can empower investors to get to that point, the more we're wealthy all of us become, you know, Absolutely. because we become a part of somebody else's system. You know, that's the way I kind of look at what we do. And it, it sounds like that's kind of like what you're looking to do too. Where you're like, this is actually where our little slice that we help out other people is getting them up to speed quicker on how to run with the system. Exactly. Exactly. And, and for example, your average buyer, right? They may be out raising money for their opportunities. I'm always out doing, my team is out heavily versed in, in acquisitions. We're really good at the face-to-face, -face, go talk to sellers, get properties under contract and take them on to closing. That's what we do. 
Although I don't own a real estate brokerage, I am part of a real estate brokerage. I am a licensed real estate agent as well. And when, I, when I'm spending time being putting on that realtor hat, that's my focus. That's my thing. So it's like, Scott, if you're my investor, Scott, what I need you to be focused on right now is, is getting your finances in order and get ready to secure the capital to do this. We're going to go out and find some opportunities that match your investor identity, right? What works for Scott and Scott's plan. Once we do that, we're going to come to you and say, Scott, click, click, boom. It's ready. To, we're ready to go. I need you to, to, to pull the trigger and get the rest of your team activated. What I find though, Scott, is that most folks, they don't even think about those things. You know, who are you going to call for your insurance? Because we're going to need to rely on them for quotes when we get through due diligence. We, we need to start developing your team and get things set up. And people think that that's kind of cliche. Like, oh, I don't need a team. I'm fine. Because, you know, I saw the guy in bigger pockets just snaps his fingers and everything happens, right? That's yeah. Not, that's, that's not really how it works. High risk doing it that way. If you're just exactly. like, oh, God, the first guy, he said we're good to go and that's it, you know? That's right. Right, 100%. Well, and, and, it's not, and I think that's the important pieces that I see is that where, and you hear these stories time and time again, right? Where pro, like properties end up coming to closing, whether it's like apartment deals or any of the deals I look with, with people that don't have good systems. And then it's a flurry of activity for like a week. And then a closing gets delayed and delayed and delayed while everybody's frantically trying to figure out all these last minute pieces. Why is because nobody did nobody had a good checklist. I mean, nobody was in there with a good process, walking it through, making sure everything was done ahead of time to allow for an easy closing. And I think that's the difference in good systems and bad systems, is bad systems will leave you just frantically putting together the pieces um, uh, at the very end. It, a lot of times the deals still get done, you know, hopefully, right? Sometimes it doesn't, um, but those are, those are two hugely different experiences of what it's like to invest with good systems versus one that will give you gray hair and you'll lose sleep over for weeks on end with bad systems for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, um, the, the worst deal that you, we, uh, that we were looking at, like bringing onto the show here today. Um, because I'm really interested to see like what that deal looks like and how, what we've talked about so far applies to it. So uh, it's not the stage. This is uh, I believe it's year it's 2001. This is back when the MLS, you had to go to, I was then, this is right after I got my real estate license. The MLS really consisted of a book that came out, I think it was once a week, but you had to go to the book. So when they released the book, they would bring it up by around nine o'clock in the morning. I'm at the office, I'm flipping through the book. I find this new listing, right? Yes, for all you millennials listening, we actually had to read paper instead of just having it on our iPhone. So I'm there at the office. I'm the first one in line because all the realtors huddle around the book. I'm flipping through the book. I find this property on the market for $40,000. It is a 3,000 square foot Victorian home in a great neighborhood for 40 grand. To put things into perspective, in fixed up condition, this is a $350,000 house all day long. Probably even more going back at the day if you would have allowed for the market increases back at the time, right? I had two friends that were basically beer drinking buddies of mine, right? that uh, two English guys that were partners. And we decided that one guy was gonna front the money. I'm gonna go out and find the opportunities and negotiate them. And then when we get them fixed up, I will handle all the sales end of it of selling them. And then I will be also doing the, kind of being the runner for materials and stuff like that. The second partner is the contractor, right? Cause he's a licensed contractor or so he says. And the third guy is an electrician. He's the money partner, right? He's, he's basically the responsible one of the group at the time. <laughs> he's the one that actually saved his money and had the money to front all this. So we're, we're cash buyers. We're real cash buyers. 
I get to this property, Scott, and uh, there's probably 35, 40 people standing on the front yard. That's how hot things were back then. And this is before the days of home and garden television. So you can imagine in today's way we do things, if that thing had hit Facebook, I mean, people would have been there, would have been a melee, it would have been crazy. I get there, I go right up to the listing agent, introduce myself. I said, I'm Tyler, I'm, a, I'm an agent, but I'm also the buyer. And I whispered near, I said, I got $50,000 cash and we'll close in seven days. And she says, done. She locked the front door with the two of us inside and did the contract, right? So we're thinking, yeah, deal of the century. Well, from there, it proved otherwise. Well, what, so it sounds like you're really excited getting in, into the deal. You negotiated the deal because you knew you were going to be buying something you thought that was going to be under the market price. Right. It sounds like you you kind of this already fit like an investment profile for you um, before you got into it, um, and, and you were going to have a seven day period to be able to inspect the home to be able to make sure that something catastrophic wasn't wrong with it. Was that the plan? So we get our seven day inspection. If it sounds good, then we move forward after that. Yeah, basically we because my, my partners were contractors, it was easy to get somebody in there to swing through in an afternoon and crawl underneath the house and look up in the attic and make sure we didn't have any major issues. Which, and we had already done several flips by this point. So, you know, we had a good chunk of change in the bank, about 300,000 cash in the bank. Uh, we were in good shape. You know, we were working as fat cats, so to speak, right? Yeah, that's good. So, so it sounds like um, everything is actually really good up to that point. I mean, you gotta be closing, go through the first seven days, you close on the property. Everybody's feeling great about it. And and then what happens? Well, so we're working on this place and just kind of rewind for just a second. I was formerly a police officer in the same town. And uh, I worked for the, I was a school resource officer and I was resulted in having that job. I put a lot of kids in jail, right? For doing stupid things. Well, I'm there at the property one day and the materials are supposed to be delivered to the job site. Well, the Home Depot truck, isn't showing up. So I call Home Depot and they say, well, we've already delivered. I said, no, you haven't. I'm standing right here. Like, no. And they gave the address. I'm like, that's not the address. That's, that's not the address of where the job site is. And they said, well, so-and-so your partner who remain unnamed came in and changed the address. I said, okay. So I, I did a little, made it for a couple of phone calls and come to find out that partner was actually using our company money to buy supplies to feed other jobs he was working on. So he was embezzling from the company. Well, I called my other partner and who was the money partner, explained this to him. And we started digging into it and discovered that was the case. And it was that the $300,000 we had in our bank account was literally down to about 10 grand. In a matter of three, four days, he managed to wipe us from that much money. So <laughs> then the... So we go to find the guy, we immediately we call an attorney. Uh, attorney says, call the police. The police say it's a civil matter. You gotta get an attorney. So we go back to a different attorney because that one wasn't gonna work. And we find out that, well, we're gonna need to sue him. Well, the problem is he, we can't find him. We, we can't serve him anywhere. He skips, he, he's English. He runs back to England. <clears throat> Literally took the money and ran back to, to England. Well, when he got to England, he wasn't, he knew that we'd probably figure out a way to track him down and go after him. So to stall us, basically to throw, as they used to say, the oil screen on the road to slow us down, he called the city and reported us for having property under construction without a licensed contractor. Well, we both laughed thinking that doesn't even make sense because 
He's the licensed contractor. Come to find out, the numbers on the sides of all of his trucks were fake. He just made them up. We never bothered to verify that he had a license. After all, he was a friend of ours. Why would we even think to, to double check? I mean, he's got all these workers. He pays them. I mean, who does you know? Right. So the code enforcement shows up with a red tag where they basically shut down the whole job. And I'm standing there in absolute shock. I mean, I was so upset. We were just, it was a mess. This is this big house. And it's the old, it's an 1800s house. So it's plaster walls, right? Which were very diligently trying not to disturb <laughs> for obvious reasons. Ever done a rehab, you know what I mean? An older house. And uh, the city inspector comes in. She takes one look at me and she says, I know you. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> and being a former law enforcement officer, I don't think like I'm a bad guy because I'm obviously on the right side of the law. But I ought to, the first thing I assume is I put somebody you love in prison <laughs> and this isn't going to work well. Turns out it was her son. Oh. So I put her son in jail for drugs uh, for a long time. Drugs and some other aggravated battery crimes and whatnot. So long story short, kids got like 20 years in, in prison. All my fault, of course, because I'm the one that gave him the drugs. And she's not happy. Well, as soon as I heard that, I literally went out the back door, down the driveway, got in the car, drove down to the city, and explained to the head of the building department what was going on, that this is unfair. I want a new inspector put on my job because she is obviously not going to be in my favor. He says, no problem. She, he assigns this other woman to the thing, right? I didn't think anything of it. Well, I still got all, I still got in all the trouble that didn't really change the trouble I was in because they had a point. I really was, I was dealing with an unlicensed contractor. I right. Know. I mean, well, technically you're not in compliance, right? With it, exactly. but like, hopefully you just find somebody that's like not out to like just totally get you. Exactly. When yeah. I left her alone, she gave instructions because I left her at the house. Remember she gave instructions to my workers that were there to open up the walls so that she could inspect the framing. When she did, she found termite damage. I'm glad she found the termite damage looking back, but at the time she opened up a can of worms. So at this point, they declared it, declared it structurally unsound and the city issued a demolition order on this house. And we're both thinking, Oh, wow. oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. So you lost $290,000 in cash from a partner that stole it from you. You got, a crazy inspector who's out to get you, who's busting up the building while you're not there uh, to get make sure it gets condemned. So you have a total loss on the property and all of your, so you're looking at like a total loss on the property and all your cash, oh, yeah. or all your investors cash. Yeah, within well, like what, within like a week, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, wow. and of course we owe people money. We owe subs because we owe all these different subs that are coming to us with their hand out going, I need to get paid. Well, I, I what did you actually do? I don't even know who you are. <laughs> the long story short, the woman that was there that had gotten removed from the job, the person they put in place was her husband. They were a lesbian couple. I didn't put them, make the connection initially. So that was, but the city didn't know they were a couple. They didn't even know they were friends. <laughs> so it just continued this, this spiral down the road. Long story short, we spent almost two years finishing this rehab about 18 months, I should say, about finishing this rehab, where my other partner and I, I was selling houses, he was doing electrical work. Every time we made more, more, more than we needed to feed our kids, any extra money, it was like a Dave Ramsey plan for rehabbers. Every, every dollar 
literally I would go buy a sheet of one sheet of drywall and go hang it one step at a time. We did an entire 3000 square foot house that way. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. I am now one hell of a drywaller. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. rock better than anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smokes, man. Is the idea there too, is that you just take the approach of, you know what, we can't uh, do it all right now. So let's just, the, what we can control in the short term though is let's just get one piece of it done. We'll just keep chunking away at it. I think a lot of people in that situation were just throwing up their hands and said, oh, the hell with it. You know, like this is never going to happen. Let's just wipe our hands of it and go away. How did you guys prevent yourself from doing that? Or, or do you wish that you would have done that? Well, for us, it was, it was my partner's, it was mostly my partner's money. Uh, at this point, he had originally funded the company and he hadn't taken his money back yet. So there was that. If we didn't finish this project, you know, it would affect our reputation, number one. We would leave this mess. We didn't want to be that those people. Um, more importantly, it just didn't seem like this problem was completely unfixable. And neither one of us were the type of people that would give up. So what it came down to is being a problem solver. We sat down with the city. We kept going up the food chain until someone would sit and talk to us. We didn't have money to hire attorneys or do anything. So we'd sit down with them and say, all right, here's the situation. How do we solve this problem? What do we need to do to solve the structural problem. And they would say, okay, um, you need to get a structural engineer out there to do an inspection. And then based on that inspection, they will dictate what needs to be done to make it structurally sound. Okay, good. So I found a structural engineer to come out and do the inspections. And, you know, we saved the money. To, it was like 500 bucks to have them come out. We paid for that. Now we got this thing from the city. We gave that to the city. The city gave us an extension, right? So they could see that we weren't these people that were just like some scumbag investor trying to get over. We were just caught in a bad situation and we're going to make it right. We just need the time to do it because, you know, we got to literally earn the money to do it as we're doing it. And surprisingly enough, after the whole chain of events, the city was very helpful in making and helping us get this done. They didn't give us any special favors or anything, but they were very, they were very patient with us, I guess is the best I can say. Can you, um, talk a little bit about how you got the city to come on your side. I don't, I think a lot of people don't understand that not necessarily that that's difficult to do, but it takes like a special finesse, I think, to be able to really navigate the bureaucracy to give, to form a relationship with people that makes them want to help you or at least be available to support you when you can't pay them to do it. Right. How did you, how did you cultivate those relationships? Was there any special like tips or tricks or approach that you took in helping um, recruit bureaucrats to help be on your side? Honestly, brutal honesty. I was completely transparent with them. I mean, that, that's it. it. At no time could they ever catch me in a lie or being deceptive or anything like that. And I explained the situation as it was, you know, and I even went down the road of, I got to take care of my partner. And that was my thing. I got to make sure my partner gets taken care of on this. He put the money up. I lost time, but he lost money. And at the time, back then, money was more important than time. Now, as I get older, time is more important than money. But, <laughs> or maybe they're equally important depending on who you talk to. But sitting down with them and looking them face to face, if I had been doing this over the phone or via letters or city council meetings, this never would have gotten done. It was actually going to the city, being extremely respectful not showing up with drywall mud slathered on my face or wearing a, a, a fancy suit and a gold watch. It was being a real person just sitting down with them and saying, I have a colossal nightmare here. 
I'm willing to do whatever it takes to work through this problem. I need the city to help me. So what I found is that I was able to actually build community by doing that. I wound up having building inspectors. This is a big, big, bigger city. I had building inspectors coming by, referring me people that were going to just help out. I had them help me interpret the code. Like they would drive by and go stop and say, how are things going? But their attitude wasn't, we're going to come, we're, we're here to, to nuke you again. It was, listen, dude, they're going to question the back room. So you got the back room. Need, you need to make sure that the back room is, this is done and that you don't finish that drywall just yet. You're getting too far ahead and you don't want to upset the building inspector. So stop what you're doing. Call for an inspection. Because a lot of what we were going through was ignorance, right? We, we didn't know. And they don't tell you everything because they don't frankly know the people behind the counter. So they were kind of, we had kind of had a bunch of big brothers and big sisters helping us like, okay, guys, first do the drywall, but don't pour any plaster over it yet. Wait till they can come by and do a nail inspection. Or think, is that because of the way that you approach the people that were there in the office when you like, initially go? And yeah. so they're like, hey, these are good guys. You know, you're, if you drive by and you see them, is that kind of what you think happened in the background? It's like the people in the office that hey, if you drive by and you see these guys, these are good guys, you know, just go check in on them or something like that. Or how, yeah. how do you do it? Because most people would be like, no, there's no way that we, I'd be able to get somebody that would care enough to like want to stop to just tell me what I need to do because I didn't have the information, you know, like that's pretty incredible. I was humble and I truly believe the best in people. I believe, I believe in quantum physics and, and things like that. And I believe that if I carry myself a certain way and if I appear determined and I am truly genuinely determined that I can solve things. When I decide I'm going to buy a building, Scott, and I go sit down with the seller. First of all, most people can't even believe that I sit down directly with the owners. That's on there. That's how do you do that? That mean there's actually real people that own apartment buildings. That's crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I sit down with human beings. And if it's, they're out of state, I sit down with them with a zoom call like this and we have a conversation real people break down the walls and the barriers and have a good solid conversation with them. And I believe that most people, when you are face to face, will capitulate if you're in the face to face with them over the phone. It's very easy to say now click or via email. How do I send this email to get them off my plate so I can go enjoy my weekend? Right. Cause it becomes cold and impersonal. Mm -hmm. The Facebook generation, as we call it, right. That's, that's everybody. I've got 5,000 friends on my Facebook, so that's supposed to make me a special guy. No, it just means that I wouldn't accept 5,000 times. That's all it means, <laughs> really. Or actually, I had a VA do it. Uh, <laughs> right. And I think that as a society, I have to get on a soapbox, but I think we've, we miss that, right? You know, we, we, we depend on technology to do a lot of the problem solving for us. And it actually, I think, creates more problems than it ever solves. I think that there's something in there that you hit on that uh, really jives with me, which is about how do you actually create connection with people, you know, and like what it really takes the people to stepping out of your way means that they, you can't offer them a currency and you can't do a quid pro quo, but what you can offer them is genuine human connection, which I think we're all starved of right now in today's day and age, because people are thinking that online work is connecting. Instagram is connecting, but we're more depressed now as a society than we've ever been and disconnected from each other with it. So yeah. how can you be the most connected in terms of information, but feel the least connected? I think it flows just exactly with like something you're touching on here in this, which is, well, the way you do that is you show up with people that are around you and you become vulnerable and honest and open about this is what's going on with me. This is where I'm at. Um, and that's the door maybe, or the window 
that allows people to connect with each other and for people to really give to each other. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And if you think about it, as an attorney, you were a former litigator. You used to go into court and pleading your case, right? And this is the same thing. But do you think the judge would would even listen to you if you sent him a Facebook instant message and said, hey, Mr. Your, your Honor, nice robe there, hotshot. So listen, my customer, right? Uh, oh, you mean my client, sorry. Uh, he's got a thing, a problem. So how about I send you a hundred bucks on the back end, give you a round of golf and we'll call this thing done. What's gonna happen? Well, Scott won't be practicing law anymore and the client will probably wind up in jail for a parking ticket. <laughs> yeah. But well, you go to court, yeah. and it's a different story. Well, you have an opportunity to connect in court. Um, uh, just a quick aside on this uh, is that I actually had a court case that I was litigating one time where I'd gone through, it was, it was about a, a contractor who had installed an electrical box, did a horrible job at installing this box and it's actually arcing inside of the box. Like it was gonna burn down the building, right? And it turns out this guy's not really licensed to be able to do that kind of work and he just did it because they asked him to and he was just like, well, yeah, I think I can do it and rewire this box and whatnot, right? And then, so he had that, they complained, he came back out, he still couldn't fix it. And so then they hired somebody else and spent, I don't know, $7,000 to get this work redone, right? Yeah. So um, there's a law, the law states that you have to give a reasonable opportunity for the contractors to repair work they did that was wrong before you can hire somebody else and then essentially demand all of your money back, right? It's like they get a, an opportunity to cure whatever they did that was defective, which seems fair and reasonable, right? Right. I went through the whole testimony and this is just a judge trial. So I'm there thinking this judge is, you know, he's going to see the law. He's going to see the facts as a way that I've gone through a very beautiful uh, way of questioning the witnesses to be able to show him that we had done everything that we're supposed to do and that we should get all the money back. And so I go through the whole thing. And then at the very end, inside of closing arguments, he's like, yeah, but I don't really know where you guys actually gave him a reasonable opportunity. And I was like, whoa, 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 he was there twice. He had continual complaints, you know, and all of this happened. It was over the course of like over a month and a half, you know, for him to do it. And even though it all came out and that was what the law was, and this is exactly what they teach you in law school, what to do. You know what won that case for me, Tyler? Mm. Was inside the closing argument when I actually just started talking to the judge, be like, what's more reasonable? Is it more reasonable that we inform him once? Is it more reasonable that we notify him via email? Is it more reasonable that we allow him out there a second time? How many times do we have to let this guy fix it or try to fix it before the house burns down? Right. You know? right? And like, what's reasonable in here in this context? And it was in just like that kind of unformal kind of like, come on, judge, like, where are we at with this? Like, what are we really thinking? Like guy to guy here. Right. This is where it's at. It's really just came two dudes talking to each other inside of the court like haggling it out. And I was like, this is the weirdest attorney experience, but it was actually what won the case. Cause obviously 10 seconds before that he had decided against me. And I was like, no, it was just like being authentic and being straightforward. And then really just hitting home with like, this is what's actually real, um, won the day. And I wonder if that's like something, I mean, that I'm pulling out um, from your story here too, which is like, what's the most powerful things we can probably be doing is actually creating opportunities for us to connect with others and that kind of way as like a, as a revenue source, but it's like revenue and types of like connection itself. It's like, it's a non-monetary revenue, you know, what it can do for us. Is that right? Absolutely is. Anytime you can handle something face to face, you're going to have a more successful transaction hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. We do everything now with Royal legal actually like all through video. 
They're like, no, 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 we're not doing phone anymore. We get everybody on video chat with any time to talk to them because the level of connection is so much stronger. So let's let's jump back into Tyler. So how did so we got back in? You're working with all the, the inspectors, and they got the. Um, it, it looks like they were trying to help you navigate along the way. How does the story wind up for you? It wound up that we were able to finish the house and get it sold. However, the there was no profit. So we lost all that money he took. We never were able to recover that money. That money's gone for good. The money that we, the, the proceeds that came from the sale really went back into, I, my partner got all that, which is what should have happened really because he wound up taking an equity line in his house to give us material money about, you know, towards the end. And we made right with everybody. We got everybody paid in the whole nine yards. And he was the one that, that generated a lot more money being an electrician than I did as a realtor back in the time. So he pretty much financed that whole thing. Profit went back to him. Like I said, it absolutely should have. That's, that's the right thing to do. He did not get all of his money back. He suffered about a $200,000 loss uh, when it was all said and done. Wow. But um, we were able to turn, and this is the most important thing, Scott, is we, wanted to, we didn't want to just do a fluff and buff job on a, on a house. We were able to take a, what was once a beautiful house, return it to the point to where it was a beautiful house, a beautiful Victorian, makes front porch, all nine yards. And we did it right. We did it with quality. Did we do granite countertops? No, but we, it, it was a good solid rehab. The people that bought it got a great house. Uh, I believe they just finally sold it. They sold it again, like three, four years ago. So it, it, it was, it wound up pretty good. We, we left it better than we found it. We'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, that's a beautiful thing, Tyler. I mean, um, I think it's a, it's a great story on too. And one of the things that I've, I've learned about, um, here today, as we do typically do a wrap up of like a lesson learned from the from the episode, among the other things we're talking about is just that the um, the importance of actually you know keeping to your word with what you're talking about here, which is like I set out to be able to do this, we pushed it all the way through to deliver something that was quality, um, and to stay consistent with that, you know, is probably something that's led to your ultimately or your success now with you know uh, all the amazing success you've been able to have um, here is is probably dedicated to the same type of principles. You know, which is we just we value quality and we value the relationships and the consistency with what I'm going to say and do what I, um, you know, what, what's in line with that. Um, so thanks for sharing on that. If you wanted to leave the listeners with like a lesson learned from from the discussion here today, what would that be? I would say never assume the answers to the questions that you haven't yet asked. I think mm. that's one of the biggest mistakes we make in society is we say, oh, the seller will never take that or the city won't allow that. You don't know that until you actually ask the question, right? Um, yeah get up there and, and talk to good, talk to people. There are lots of good quality human beings in the world that are want, that want to help other people, but they'll never have the opportunity if you don't ask them. No. I, and I would piggyback onto that one is get like at least like four or five no's before you're pretty sure about something. Cause a lot of times, like in my field, especially you'll find that really even professionals in the areas that I work in, do you sometimes you have to go through three or four people before you find the one that gets it? of like what it is that you're really trying to do. And they're like, oh, okay, finally I understood. Most people, even though you ask that are professionals, I find have a knee jerk reaction, yes or no. They don't really think through the problem. Has that been your experience as well? 100%. Yeah, 100%. okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been a great episode, Tyler. Thank you so much for coming on. And if, for everybody that wants to connect with you or with, the, um, at, at, with Cashflow guys, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm available on all the social media channels, but I prefer to reach out to people through my website. Uh, I like to kind of keep my, my communication down a funnel. So if you can come to my website, there's 
my preferred methods that are through there. You can send me a message or, or whatnot there, and I'd be happy to, to help folks. And if I can, and go from there. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have that in the show notes. And that's the cashflowguys.com uh, website, right? Yeah, it's just cashflowguys.com. Awesome. No well, thank you, Tyler, for, for coming on the show today. Uh, really been a pleasure and uh, I appreciate it. Um, guys, I also will be um, appearing on Tyler's show uh, here. I think that's set to air here on December 21st. I'm looking forward to uh, have y'all's reactions to that. Let me know what you think about that one. That was a really fun, great episode. Um, and, uh, and, and thank you guys for tuning in. Of course, this is Scott Royal Smith uh, with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Uh, until we meet again, guys, be good. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.